right, well, good afternoon, everybody. I hope your week has been going well. Uh, if you have your book, we're going to still be in the justification chapter, which is right around 320, right around that uh, spot in your, in your book, if you want to open that up. And also, with your Bible, we can go ahead and jump to Romans chapter 1. Last week, we began our conversation on justification because this is such an important topic and it is central to just understanding the gospel. And there's been a lot of, a lot of uh, debate about it, especially since the Reformation, which was really all about this along with a couple other doctrines mixed in and the authority of Scripture as well. Uh, this is a, a central issue for us as Christians. Uh, Greg, could you pray for us and then we will kind of jump into this? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word Lord, that we would not be left in the dark as to the most important matters of all of life when it comes to how we as sin sinners and rebels are forgiven of our sin and made right with you. Um, God, this, this gospel, this good news that you have given us is so precious. Uh, Lord, it is worth 10,000 lifetimes of study uh, and more. And Lord, so help us in these few moments that we get together today. To, uh, to unpack your word as faithfully as we can and get, get it right on this doctrine of justification by faith. Um, Lord, we need your help. We pray for your spirit to be with us, to help us, and that he would illuminate our hearts so that we can see what we need to see, understand it the way we need to, and embrace it and live in light of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And, and as we sort of set up this conversation, if you look at your Bible, Romans 1, starting in verse 18, I'm not going to read a lot. I'm just going to overview. You can see that first verse is the bad news of the gospel. So, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then from 1.18 all the way to 32, that long section, he is condemning, really bringing God's judgment over the Gentiles. That is, those who don't have their Bible, they don't believe in the Jewish God, they worship idols, sort of the pagan world out there. And, and Paul brings down pretty strong condemnation for that group of people. They need the gospel. And he, he knows already what he's doing because as he's talking, some of the Jewish people in his audience are thinking, you go get them, Paul. You tell those heathens how bad they are. This is fantastic. And so Paul's sort of slowly setting them up, and all of a sudden he wields on them. He turns at the end of chapter 1, and instead of saying they, because all of chapter he keeps saying they, 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 what does he say at the beginning of chapter 2? He says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath uh, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? And then he ends up saying, <laughs> verse 23, you who boast in the law, that's the Jewish people, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So you follow in the argument that they is the Gentiles out there. The you is the Jewish religious people inside the synagogue with their, with their Old Testament. And Paul brings us all to a head in chapter 3 by saying, verse 9 of chapter 3, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have all 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews from chapter 2 and Greeks from chapter 1, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So just to kind of get us in the right framework, Paul is putting everybody under condemnation of sin. You say, that doesn't sound like good news. He puts us all under condemnation so that he can then introduce the gospel as our only hope for Jew or Gentile. So let's go back to chapter 1, Fred, and can you walk us through his introductory comment in verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16, 17, the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in other words, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Explain why that was such an important, especially for Martin Luther, why was this such an important passage? You, you know how long that initial comment is. Do you mind if I read that? Yeah. This uh, is from a book by Roland Bainton. Um, these are Luther's actual words. And I, I moved every time I read them. I, last time you read them, you were, I think. Um, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my spirit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not have a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And, and, you know, and that's one of the things I think you're going to talk about today later. But let Scripture provoke you. Let Scripture drive you. Let Scripture um, um, allow you to search the Word, to search the, for truth, because it's in here. Uh, he says, but just pause, Fred. That's a great point. Had Luther been reading Romans 1, 16 and 17, and just taken the first interpretation that popped into his head, there would have been no reformation. I mean, in other words, the rediscovery of the gospel came from his patient, diligent search of that text over and over Amen. and over. Because he, he was overwhelmed by this verse. Night and day, I pondered. See, he's, he's searching until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasp that justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet term in greater love this passage of Paul became to me a very gate to heaven. What more can I say? It was in searching the scripture. His uh, mentor, Johann von Staupitz, knew Luther's answer was, could be found in the word. That's why he uh, directed him to teach first Psalms, then Romans, and then Galatians. And in the teaching of Romans, Luther discovered this with the help of the Holy Spirit, obviously, as, as truth. And it radically changed him and the whole world at that time. 
Yeah, Romans 1, 16 and 17 is, is huge. If you want a, a couple of verses to memorize, I would encourage you to do this. You can get an index card. Just write it on the index card. One side, write the verses out. On the back, write the reference. Um, take it with you. Keep it in your car. Um, because it's, it's one of those truths from the Bible that is so central, so vital, um, that it, it will sustain your faith. It will renew your faith. Um, on an almost daily basis. Um, because as, you, as we grow as believers, one of the things we grow in is our own awareness of our own sin, our awareness of how far short we fall. Uh, in Romans 3, 23, when Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the, glo- the glory of God, that's a present tense, like you're falling short now. It's not just you did in the past. Everyone falls short now. He's writing to Christians in Rome, we fall short um, and so to channel Jerry Bridges, our, our best days are never so good that we're beyond the need of God's grace. And how does that grace chiefly come to us in terms of the gospel, but the righteousness that God gives us through faith? The righteousness, again, that's not, it's not like imparted to us. It's not infused into us. It's declared over us. It's this change in legal status from enemy of God, guilty of sin and rebellion, to friend of God, child of God, righteous in God's sight. It's a, it's a, a declaration. It is a once for all declaration. We're going to look at sanctification later. Sanctification is a progressive process by which we are conformed to Christ and we grow as believers. Justification is a one-time, um, not repeatable declaration by God. And once it's made, it can never be revoked. Um, So that's why this is so big. When you're having a bad day, you need to remember and go back as your hope that God accepts me today, not because of how good or bad I've done in my faithfulness to him, but because of the merits of Jesus alone. And that's what we're getting at. Remember, it's faith alone in Christ alone. Everything we need to be accepted in God's sight, everything we need for God to look on us and say, you are my child with whom I'm well pleased, he gives us in Jesus. And so we say it's not by how well I've lived, it's completely on how perfectly Jesus lived and I'm trusting in him again. It's something we just continually go back to. Uh, we never gra- I think I said it last week, we never graduate from this. We never move on from this. We don't mature out of this. We always go back to this precious truth. And an illustration, since the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom, the husband of the church, uh, let's use an illustration with the bride and groom. So let's say that there's a man and a woman about to get married, and let's say that he, since he's representing Christ in this illustration, let's say that he is like a, a billionaire. Okay, he's just like incredibly wealthy. And let's say that she, given her background and, and what all, she's accrued a large, a massive amount of debt for whatever reason she has. And uh, they, they fall in love. They, they, they genuinely love each other. They, they're going to get married. And this girl oftentimes stays up at night concerned about her her debt and how she's ever going to pay it. Well, eventually they go to get married and they walk down the aisle. And at the very moment that the, you know, the minister pronounces them husband and wife at that moment, uh, did anything change about her physically? Like, no, she's the same as she was when she walked in. Did did anything change about her as a a person? It's like, well, not really, but something did change to her position. Uh, She'd just be, all of her debt was immediately in the moment of her marriage as she has made one with her husband. Immediately, all of her debt is absorbed by her husband. And now her status is a billionaire. 
That happened just like that by saying, I do. Well, once they were joined together, uh, now at that point, she now has his financial status. Her, her debt is absorbed by him. So if the next week she's having a hard time sleeping and she starts thinking, what am I going to do about my debt? Oh, no, my debt. Oh, no, what am I going to do? The problem is what? She's failing to believe what's already true of her. She doesn't have debt anymore. She is rich because of her husband. And so we also, when we have these moments of guilt and you're, you can't sleep at night, because what did I say to my kids or what did I say to my roommate or why was I so sharp with my tongue or why was I this or that? When, when that's going on, why did I gossip? You know, I, I shouldn't have said that. I, I, I said this thing. I shouldn't have said it. it was critical. I didn't need to say it. And, and you're kind of kicking yourself later. That's, that's okay to feel some, some, some guilt when we sin. That's okay. But then what do we do with it? That's the question. What do we do? A maturing Christian, you know, an immature Christian just beats themselves up day after day after day and can never get back on their feet. And they just feel guilt-ridden, like God doesn't love me, God doesn't accept me, I failed again, look at how miserable my life is, I can barely call myself a Christian, look at this. A maturing Christian is not someone who never sins, it's someone when they sin, they go, I'm no longer in debt to God. My debt has been paid. I am now rich in righteousness before God. Like my legal status before God is not sinful, it is righteous. So even though I struggle with sin and I at times still do sin, which is evil, at the same time, I am counted righteous in Christ because real righteousness from Jesus really covers me. So I think this is an incredibly um, comforting. I mean, what is more comforting? Your past failures do not get the last word on your life. Your sin will not stand over you at the final judgment if you're in Christ. All that you've done wrong is washed away, thrown like as far as the east is from the west. Ultimately, your sin is gone and forgotten. Uh, just that, that should be a reassuring uh, thing for all of us to believe. You know, here, um, if you're in Romans 3 right now, um, going back up to 9 through 20 is not very good news uh, because, again, Paul's reminding us throughout uh, uh, the Old Testament, how uh, that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And then he closes with that. For by the works of the law, in verse 20, uh, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But then some of the greatest, this conjunction, Paul's a master at using the conjunction for transition. I think of Ephesians, but God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he says, in light of your illustration about the bride, but now, he says, here in 21, verse 321, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is the same righteousness of God he's talking about in verse, uh, in chapter 1, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's simply the Old Testament. That's simply uh, the, the, the law. Uh, look, think of Abraham. Uh, Genesis 15, he believed God and he was reckoned as righteous. Mm -hmm. So th that's just one of many testif uh, uh, testifications. That's not a word. <laughs> Testimony. <laughs> Testimony, there you go, to the righteousness of God. And, and so through the law and the prophets, they bear witness. They support this, uh, this statement by uh, Paul. The righteousness, righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There it is. Uh, faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, who believe, for there is no distinction. And then he reminds us, as if we might have forgotten with this good news, he, he goes back up into the, in verses 9 through 20, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. Everyone. There's no one righteous, no, not one. In spite of that, and are justified by his grace as a gift. 
Can, can you believe that? I mean, that's incredible. That's probably one of the more profound statements in all of Scripture. We're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, both the passive righteousness of Christ dying on the cross and the, and the uh, active righteousness of Christ living a perfect life, which we couldn't do, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to satisfy the anger, wrath of God, the, the appeasement uh, of God to be received by faith. So there it is again, justification by faith. I mean, these, these are fighting words, ladies and gentlemen, in a world that doesn't accept this. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, Christ died for our sins? Oh, yes, but oh, no. It's so much more, so much more profound, I guess. He, he also lived for our righteousness. Yes, yes, both at, and. At the, at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, 16 and following, what does he say? He, he says, John, you need to baptize me. And John is like, I think you've got that backwards. I think I need to be baptized by you. You're the Messiah. I'm not perfect. And uh, Jesus says, no, no, no. It is necessary. It is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus saw his life as an act of obedience, a complete act of perfect obedience to the Father. Uh, we're in Romans. Just flip to Romans 5 for a brief moment, and you look at a couple of verses when he compares Adam and Christ. But look specifically at verse 17, comparing Adam and the new Adam, Jesus, Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, there it is, his perfect life, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the first Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Uh, and on it goes. But th that, that should be a, a comforting uh, idea for us. Um, back in chapter 1, drawing, like keeping all of this um, in, in mind, we'll go back to uh, chapter 4 here in a sec. Chapter 1, when, again, when he says in verse 17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. You know, it's kind of kind of tricky to translate that from the Greek. Is it from faith for faith? You know, the ESV has a little note says beginning and ending in faith. Um, the, the point of what Paul's getting at there is this righteousness has only ever been received by faith. It has never been earned by anything we do. Um, and this actually matters. If you look at chapter 4, um, when Paul's talking, we, we referenced some of this last time, Paul, you know, going back to Genesis 15, which we've mentioned, that's where Paul gets his, you know, this reckoning of righteousness to people because Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, but here's something interesting that you need to pay attention to. It, it's, a, it's an exercise in biblical theology, an exercise in letting uh, and seeing how the New Testament is dependent on the Old Testament. Okay. Look at verse nine. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And here's the question. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And see, the Judaizers will come in and Jews would want to stress, well, you need circumcision just as much as you need faith. Abraham was circumcised, therefore you must be circumcised. But what does Paul do? 
Look at what Paul says in the verse 10. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Okay, and that's absolutely crucial because he's saying, listen, Paul was, or Abraham was declared righteous and accepted by God long before he ever received the sign and seal of circumcision. This is going to play into our understanding of baptism. This is going to play into so much of what you read in the New Testament where Judaizers and those kept wanting to bring the law and bring circumcision in. And what does Paul do? He says, Abraham received this righteousness before he was circumcised. So what was the point of circumcision? Ultimately, you look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so the point is, he's bringing this up so that Gentiles understand righteousness is something that is granted to you long before you take any steps of obedience to God. Okay, it is granted before obedience. And then he talks about the Jews. It's like, yeah, the Jews, circumcision was required, but even in their case, circumcision wasn't what made them righteous before God. It's did they have faith like Abraham had? And if they had faith like Abraham had, then they would be declared righteous. This also plays into, I think, um, when we get to Galatians and in Paul's dealing with the Judaizers there, you got to circumcise. It's like, you're missing the point. Abraham was declared righteous before circumcision. Therefore, everyone who believes God's promise in Christ, they're righteous before circumcision, before baptism, before anything that they do in response to God. And we got it. And Paul, looking at the order that it took place in the Old Testament, sees, okay, righteousness comes before obedience. Always. That's really important. I think you uh, said the other day, you, you've got to be careful, like, for example, in, in discussions about the Trinity, because if you venture too far, it, it could be heresy. It's mm -hmm. the same thing with this. That's why he says in verse 321, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's what you're saying, mm -hmm. Greg. Yep. It has nothing to do with the law. He, yep. he manifested it through Abraham by faith, and he yep. reinforces that further in this paragraph. Oh, that's good. If you hold your spot in Romans, we're going to go to Philippians just for a second. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, and I, I want to make an argument. Uh, I'm sure we're on the same page here, but I want to highlight the point of our own righteousness cannot save us, even our best righteousness. And so look real quick. Well, let's start in chapter 2. This might be an easier spot to start. This famous Christ hymn, perhaps, where Jesus is being honored for his sacrifice for us. Let me just zero in on one spot. Verse 7. So although he was equal with God, verse 7 of Philippians 2, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, now I remember hearing a pastor point this out. I never thought about this. Paul, okay, so Paul starts with Christmas, right? Do you see Christmas in this, in this verse? Being found in human form. He humbled himself. The so that's the incarnation. That's Jesus becoming human. And then it ends with his death, right? The cross. Now, he's going to summarize 33 years in the middle with one word. So he comes, he was equal with God, but he came in human form. And then he ends up, so it skips from his incarnation straight to his death. And there's only one word used to describe the intervening area. And it's the word obedient. 
Uh, one more time. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when Paul wants to summarize Jesus' 33 years, he can use the word humble obedient, humble obedience. His whole lifespan, obedient to the point of death. Okay, why does that matter? Well, chapter 3. Paul warns about what Greg just mentioned, the circumcision party right here, uh, verse 2. Let me start in verse 1. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. So he says, listen, there's a time and place to repeat these things. Even if we already know these things, they need to be said again for our safety. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's the Judaizers. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That would be in what I do. I put no confidence in what I have done or what I accomplish. Verse 4, Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists his righteousness, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Now listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, that's pretty clearly stated there about it happening by faith. But I want to focus in on that word rubbish. You, somebody may have the King James. Infamously translates it dung. Dung or which, excrement. Yeah. Or, yes. D dung is a completely legitimate translation of this word scubalon. And uh, it, 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 the word refers to sewage and refuse and rubbish and, and dung and all that. Kind of, you could translate it, any of those words. Uh, rubbish is a, is a slightly muted term. I mean, you could, you could say it more strongly than rubbish. But he, here's the point. I, I want to put two verses side by side. One from right here. One is Paul looks at his whole life of, of obedience, his, his trying his best in his own effort to obey the law of God. All his quiet times, Bible memorization, going to synagogue, sitting under the feet of Gamaliel, learning all of his stuff, memorizing all this stuff, training. He's got a seminary degree, right, from Gamaliel. It's like, okay, all that. And he puts it on a scale and he compares it to the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, it's an insult to put those things, to compare those things. It's an insult to try to present my righteousness to God as the thing that will secure me in a relation or earn me a relationship with Him. And you think of Isaiah 60, 64, 6, I think it is. Our most righteous acts are like filthy rags. Let's put those two verses side by side. More graphic than you may not want to know here, okay, right? Most righteous acts, filthy rags. Commentators will say that refers to used menstrual garments. Not making this up, okay? Used menstrual garments. That's my most righteous acts are filthy rags. Philippians 3, Paul says, my most righteous acts are excrement, scubalon, dung, okay? So those are your two verses in the Bible to hold on to on this. If you are going to try to work your way up the ladder to earn your way into heaven, if you're going to try to work really hard to get up there, at the end of the day, what the Bible says in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that when you lay your righteousness before God, all your quiet times, all your church attendance, all your being good and trying not to use bad language and be nice and watch what you should watch and do what you should do and not think bad thoughts, all your self-discipline, all that you've ever done on your own to try to earn your standing religiously before God, all of it is filthy rags and excrement to God. 
And you say, well, that, could that possibly be true? If my, my children, I love my kids beyond words, I love them. Sometimes I get mad at them, but I love them. Okay, I, I love them. And if my, if my son Micah, just turned five, if Micah uh, were to draw me a picture, which he does, you know, to paint me something, to draw me something with the crayons, uh, if he gives it to me, he says, Dad, I love you, I want you to have this, I, I love it. I'm going to put it on the fridge. It's fan- I love it. It's just fan- it just gives me delight, okay? You may not think it's the, it's the greatest piece of art you've ever seen, but I, I love it. I love it. As, as his dad, I love that. If my, if my son were to say to me, if, if Micah were to say to me, if you were to bring to me uh, a piece of artwork and say, Dad, with this artwork, I would like to earn your fatherly love of me. I want, you, I want to buy your love for me with this artwork. That would be a tremendous insult to me. That would not be something I would smile upon. He has deeply misunderstood my relationship with him. That, 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 he cannot earn my love with a piece of paper with some crayon on it. It just doesn't, he's not going to earn my affection for him, my, my fatherly love for him. That's, that's crazy to think that way. But if he gives it to me as a sheer gift, a, a, an act of gratitude because he loves me because he's secure in my love as his father, it delights me greatly. Now, do you see where this is going? If I'm trying to earn God's acceptance for eternity in heaven with my quiet time, that is scubalon. That, that is a joke. That is an insult to God. And, 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 and it's a complete misunderstanding of my own sinfulness. But if I'm resting in the finished work of Jesus and I do my quiet time to meet with him, commune with him, get to know him, spend time with him, that delights the heart of the Lord. That delights God. It pleases the Father like an aroma arising to him. But do you see how different those two approaches to Christian obedience are? One's Christian and one is legalistic. And the legalistic one will not earn our place with God. Well, the thing that I I like the most, the one thing that I, um, when I think of justification by faith, is such a profound um, Term, when you think through it, that it does give you um, that peace with God, as Romans 5, 1 says, um, that we have peace with God. Because I don't think we have peace with God until we understand what this means, that we are justified mm-hmm. by faith alone, not through, through our works or that are nothing but, but excrement. So, you know, there is a comfort in that. And we don't ever want to forget that. Um, uh, that I think that's why R.C. made that a major part of his whole ministry. He never stopped short of reminding us of our justification. Mm-hmm. Well, I, something else too, um, we need to understand how central justification is to the gospel. Um, you know, the gospel is the good news message of how we as sinners can be made right with God, have our sins forgiven, accepted by God. Um, it, you know, it's a message, it's, it's good news, and at the heart of that, I think it is right to say are kind of two things. One, we've, you guys, I wasn't here for this, but you guys did an excellent job talking about the atonement. Like we think penal substitutionary atonement. How is it that our sin is forgiven? How is it that God's wrath is turned away? It's through Christ's atoning work. That's one aspect of what's at the heart of the gospel. The other aspect is the righteousness that God gives us when we believe. Um, and I, I want to make sure we understand we're not making that up when we say that this justification by faith is central to the gospel. Back in Romans um, 1.16, um, you know, we, we rightly remember verse 16 so well. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salva- salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then Paul says, verse 17, for in it, for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for 
faith. And so Paul is clearly laying out the fact that justification by faith is central to our understanding of the good news, is that God accepts you not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of your trusting in what Christ did for you. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Galatians um, chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. You're familiar with the the book of Galatians. Um, Mark preached through it. Um, I can't remember how long ago it was now. It was a while ago. But yeah, so, but you preached through it. We, we've gone through this. Um, and one of the, the biggest things that Paul is concerned with is how quickly the Galatians have gone from faith in Christ alone to, well, we need to be circumcised too. God won't accept us on faith alone. God accepts us on faith and circumcision. And so not that I, I, I see us here at North Avenue as, as, like in danger of this at the moment, but we need to feel the force that if we're not careful, we can easily fall into the same trap the Galatians did. And so let's start reading in Galatians uh, chapter five, verse one. I'll make a few comments along the way. Um, Why we cannot add um, even, I'll say even spirit empowered obedience Mm -hmm. to the gospel. Okay, so verse one, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom from the law, freedom from condemnation. Um, freedom from everything that we couldn't do on our own. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then look at verse 2. This, the, Paul's language here, I don't think he's overstating the case. It says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ won't there's nothing he can do for you if you accept circumcision. Christ can't help you is what Paul's saying. There's nothing you can gain from him if you think that being circumcised is necessary for you to be accepted with God. Verse three, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So if you're gonna go one step in, you gotta go the whole way, Paul's saying. You can't just pick and choose. If you're gonna do circumcision, then you're bringing the whole Old Testament law covenant with it and you are bound to keep the entire thing to live by it and stake your hope on it. Verse four, he, said, he goes even further. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now he's not talking about like losing your salvation, but in terms of our understanding of things, grace is communicated through a, a gospel that says you're made right with God by faith alone. And if you reject that, you're falling from grace. Like there's grace here. And if we move away from righteousness in Christ alone, then we're falling away from grace. And we are, in effect, we're severed from Christ. We're not close to him. We don't have life in him if we're gonna put our hope in circumcision. But let's, let's move on. For through the spirit by faith, we, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's, it's becoming very popular um, in, in, in evangelical Christian circles, more conservative reform camp, whatever, to talk about adding this maintenance language to the gospel. Yes. And um, they'll say, yeah, the gospel contains two types of language. You've got entry language 
which is justification, all of that. And then you've got maintenance language, which is walking in the spirit, our, you know, working through love and all of that. The gospel has both is what is being said. This is one of the reasons why I keep harping on the social justice issue because that seems to be the entry point for so much of this today in the church. It's our, our weakest point. Um, it's the point where, we, where the church just seems most prone to want to compromise. And it's with language like that. There's entry language, how you get in, then there's maintenance language. And he's saying this is in the gospel. Okay, this isn't the fruit of the gospel. This is part of the gospel. I've been in conversations. This has been a while back with people online. They're not saying that obedience flows from the gospel. They're saying obedience is part of the gospel. You know, being concerned about racial reconciliation, being concerned about social justice issues. If you're not concerned about that, you don't get the gospel. It's not that seeking to, to make a difference in those things flows out of our faith in Christ. It's bound up with our response in faith. And you see the difference. That's exactly what the, what the Judaizers in Galatia were doing. They're taking something that this, this issue of circumcision and obedience to the law, and they're bringing it into the message of the gospel itself. And they're saying, you don't have the whole gospel if you don't have circumcision. People today, you don't have the whole gospel if you don't have this issue or this issue or this issue along with your faith in Christ. And that's why I drew attention to Romans 1, 17, when Paul says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Meaning the only way you get righteousness from God is through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't import works. You don't import any kind of obedience, even spirit empowered obedience. That was the problem with the Pharisee and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He knew it all came from God, but then he was trusting in what he, what God had worked in him, what he was doing with that. He was boasting in what he was able to do with what God gave him. And that is not the basis of our acceptance with God. The basis of our acceptance with God is faith alone in Christ alone. No additions, no substitutes, not even a little bit. Because the moment we do, Paul says, we're severed from Christ. Christ is of no advantage and a whole lot of other bad stuff. Greg, this is really significant. Um, Luther said, Luther addressed this. As he said, that's why when we do this, adding anything to the gospel, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. The, the, uh, the gospel is described in Romans 3, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise, we, re we resort to works. There's something we think we have to do. And, we, whether we, and so he said, uh, we need to partake of the uh, active righteousness of Christ that's already been imputed to us and rest in that rather than try to um, perform or, or do some work because that's, that's the human tendency. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's like a, a child that, that, that makes a mistake. They, they want to do something nice for mommy and daddy. So they may bring them a cookie or something. I don't know. But, because they know they messed up. Well, we want to do the same thing. We know we messed up. So we want to do something to help God along. And a sign that we're slipping into a works mentality would be either a growing sense of arrogance about yourself spiritually. If you feel an increasing sense of, I'm sort of above everybody else, yes. I'm kind of superior, then you're either, you may have theological self-righteousness, you know, that's possible. You may have, uh, you know, active obedience, you may be obedient self-righteousness, it may be whatever it may be. But you, you may, over time, if you feel yourself sort of puffed up, you're starting to rely on your works or what you're doing. And if over time you start to feel a sense of absolute despair, you're also probably relying on your works and not doing very well. 
And, and so I, I, whether you're feeling arrogance over, I feel like I'm doing better than other people, which is a lie, or I feel like I'm doing just horribly and I'm comparing myself and I think I'm losing and I'm despairing, both of those trajectories are a lack of understanding the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that His righteousness is counted as ours uh, in the gospel. That's beautiful. I do, say, I do think it's important to say, you know, in light of this emphasis, this doesn't mean that our works don't matter. No. Um, another thing that came out, I think Luther said this, and I might not get it 100% accurate, but it's like we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. Meaning works are always a companion to faith, but works come about because of faith. They're not part of the faith. They come about because of it. And that fine distinction is all the difference between getting the gospel right and getting the gospel wrong. We work for God because he has already accepted us, not in order to obtain his acceptance. And, and that's why it's so dangerous. Anytime we say something I do, even if it's empowered by God, it's something I do is what's gaining that acceptance. We've lost the gospel, but that doesn't mean that we don't work. It, it doesn't mean that, that we don't strive to become more holy people or more, you know, more godly in our attitudes, more godly in our actions, that we don't, you know, see the world around us and, and care for people. It's not saying oh, yeah. that, but it is saying we cannot, we dare not, we must not add our obedience into the gospel itself. Obedience, as Paul, I think it's in Colossians, says, you know, the, the gospel is bearing fruit in you. So the gospel, when it changes us, when we receive Christ and we're declared righteous, God begins a work in us that works itself out in obedience to him. But the obedience flows from faith, not a part of it. I completely agree. And just tell, tell a quick story here as we're running low on time. I don't think I've told this story before. Um, about 11 years ago, I was taking, I was almost done with Bible college. I was taking a class, a two-week winter course on Catholicism and on Eastern Orthodoxy. And I had a professor, I will not say his name to protect the guilty, but I had a professor, this is an evangelical conservative Bible college, you know, an hour and a half from here. So I, I'm, I'm uh, taking this winter course. It was a cold January and uh, two-week course, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy. And he brought in Eastern Orthodox uh, priest, I guess you call him. His name was Father Jacob. I remember him. And I actually went to his church, so-called, and I went, through, I sat through a, a long service there and um, got to talk to, the, to him. Who, he clearly did not believe the gospel. It was crystal clear. Father Jacob he's, had this big black robe on and a huge crucifix, and I asked him about the doctor of justification. He gave a works answer crystal clear. I was just like, I was like, well, we, I actually said at one point, I, I was, I was pretty young, but I, I just said, I said, uh, you know, either I'm a Christian and you're not, or you're a Christian and I'm not, but we both can't be Christians because we're not, it's not the same gospel. You have works at the Amen. center of yours and mine doesn't. And so one of us has got this thing completely wrong. And so here, this is the story I don't think I've told is, it's a little embarrassing, honestly. My evangelical professor started telling me, and I, I, I went to lunch, he, he was very generous with his time. We went to lunch together and I was annoying him. Like every day after class, I would stay as long as possible, ask him all, I was just like, come on, come on, come on, I need help, I need help. And, and I, I, on this doctor of justification, he thought I was a little crazy because I was so big on it, you know, so, I was so emphasizing it. He, he said to me that the Catholic view and the Protestant view, the differences are only a matter of semantics. And it was, they're the same view, just with different wording. And so, I was probably what? I was like 21, and I'd just been a Christian for four years or so. And so I, I, I started listening to this guy, and I listened to him. And this is the only time in my life as a Christian that I ever doubted justification by faith. Only time I ever doubted. But I remember this so vividly, because this has never happened to me before or since. I'm, I'm between, we had, we had these four-hour class periods, I think 8 to 12 in the morning. 
we had this giant, like a 15-minute break between two halves of the class. And Dr. So-and-so and I, the, my professor and I are talking, and almost everyone has left the class. There's like a girl was in there, I remember, maybe one of the guys, and there's some people out going to the bathroom, and he and I are going, and I'm getting a little heated, okay? Like, I'm getting a little heated because, and, and he, he says, listen, almost like, it's almost instructive me, try to read it from the other perspective. Like, try to read it as if your righteousness is inherent. Like, as if it's, it's my obedience that makes God love me. <laughs> Evangelical professor who's written books. So I'm, I'm talking to him, and... and this just never happens to me ever. This, this was so shaking me at the core because I started wondering if he was correct, that my, righteous, my actual righteousness is the foundation of my relationship with God. It was such a terrifying thought that, that maybe he's right. Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe he's right. That was my moment. And I felt like there was like a, a, an earthquake at the center of my heart. And I, again, this is embarrassing. I didn't just start crying. I started like to lose, like, this never happens. I just like, I started to, like, lose it. I, I started to sob, and I had to run out of the room. I've never had that happen to me, I don't think, in my life. And I ran out to the parking lot. It's freezing cold. I opened my car. I turned my car on. I had a black Honda Prelude. I sat down. I hit a deer with it, so it looked ugly. I sat down in my Honda Prelude with my, with my heat on, and I sobbed over my steering wheel for half an hour. I mean, I'm talking, I sobbed. Like, almost like looked like a crazy person sobbed over my steering wheel. And a, a guy named Zach uh, in my class, no Zach at this church, uh, Zach in my class, a tall kid, uh, Dr. So-and-so sent him out to check on me because he didn't know if I was okay. And Zach came out and saw it. So I have one eyewitness. He came out and he looked at me. He's like, are you okay? And I couldn't even talk to him. I just looked at him and it's like snot, everything. I was like wiping my face with whatever I had. And he goes, okay, Zach had never seen me cry. He, he walks back into the, he's like, I think we need to call someone. And so uh, after 30 minutes, I cleaned myself up and I went back in and finished class. But uh, that, was the, that was the point for me where it was no looking back. We are, we are justified by Christ's righteousness, not by anything we do. And then that next weekend, Jerry Edgar asked me, you may have heard of him, he asked me to come speak to his Bible classes on justification, and I about went off like a bomb. I walked wow. into like his seventh graders, I was like, do you know how you're right with God? <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, it is not by your works. The kids were all like terrified. But I mean, I, I just, that was to me, that was when it was sealed in stone. I'm never yes. looking back. I, I went, I did a thorough investigation. It was no question about it. It's Christ's righteousness given to me as a gift. And if you try to shifted, it's the most terrifying thing, because I felt it for one day. It's the most terrifying thought in the world, that God will look upon me based on how I live my life, ultimately. That my obedience is the ground of God's love for me. Terrifying thought. Just the thought of it made me break in half that, after, that, that morning. Okay, I, I got to stop there. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we will, we will uh, move on here. Heavenly Father, thank you that this doctrine is taught so often and so clearly in your word. God, it is just wonderful news that my sin is gone. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count no sin, and that Christ's righteousness is mine, that, that we wear it like clothing, that we are truly counted righteous in the beloved, that we can go boldly before the throne of grace not because we had a good quiet time this morning. We may not have had any quiet time this morning, but because Jesus was perfect for us. He was perfect in our place. And God, I pray if anyone in this room or listening online is doubting whether it's their own obedience or Jesus' obedience that they must stand on in confidence before God on the final judgment, I pray you would open our eyes and show us how horrifying it is to think about standing before God in our own filthy rags in our own refuse, in our own false righteousness, and help us to flee to Christ who 
perfectly obeyed your law on our behalf and in whom only we can find hope and forgiveness and righteousness and ultimately uh, fellowship with you. So God, help us to run from our filthy rags and to embrace the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness and to rest in them and rejoice in them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. We will pick up again next Sunday, Lord willing.